0: Welcome to SongCraft, conversations
1: with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. SongCraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our
0: episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at Facebook.com slash SongCraftShow and follow us on Twitter at SongCraftShow.
1: You're listening to Galveston, a number one hit for Glenn Campbell that was written by our guest on this episode of SongCraft, Jimmy Webb. Webb emerged as a superstar songwriter and arranger in 1967 when two of his songs, The Fifth Dimension's Up, Up, and Away and Glenn Campbell's By the Time I Get to Phoenix, were among the five nominees for the Grammy's Song of the Year Award. He went on to write a string of major hits for Campbell, including Wichita Lineman, Where's the Playground Susie, Honey Come Back, and many others. Additionally, he penned MacArthur Park, which was a hit for a diverse range of artists, including Richard Harris, Waylon Jennings, Tony Bennett, Andy Williams, and Donna Summer. The Worst That Could Happen, which was a top five hit for the Brooklyn Bridge. Didn't We, which was recorded by Thelma Houston, Frank Sinatra, Diana Ross, and Barbara Streisand. All I Know, which became a top-ten hit for Art Garfunkel, The Moon's a Harsh Mistress, which has been recorded by Joe Cocker, Judy Collins, Linda Ronstadt, and Josh Groban, and If These Walls Could Speak, which was recorded by Glenn Campbell, Amy Grant, Nancy Griffith, and Sean Colvin. Others who've covered material from the Jimmy Webb songbook include Diana Ross, Dusty Springfield, Nina Simone, The Four Tops, Roberta Flack, The Temptations, The Association, Tom Jones, Dionne Warwick, Cass Elliott, Harry Nilsson, Nancy Wilson, Cher, Bob Dylan, the Everly Brothers, Nick Cave, John Denver, Kenny Rogers, Sheena Easton, David Crosby, Rosemary Clooney, Michael Feinstein, R.E.M., Amy Mann, America, Aretha Franklin, Isaac Hayes, Peggy Lee, Bette Midler, James Taylor, Carrie Underwood, Dwight Yoakum, and the Highwaymen. Consisting of Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, and Chris Christopherson, who took Jimmy's song Highwayman to number one, earning him a Grammy for Country Song of the Year. As an artist, Jimmy has released more than a dozen albums, most recently 2013's Still Within the Sound of My Voice, which features duets with guest artists such as Lyle Lovett, Carly Simon, Keith Urban, and Brian Wilson. One of the most celebrated songwriters on the planet, Jimmy is the only individual to win Grammy Awards for music, lyrics, and orchestration. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, and the Great American Songbook Hall of Fame. Additionally, he has received ASCAP's Lifetime Achievement Award, the Influential Songwriter Award from the National Music Publishers Association, and the Academy of Country Music's prestigious Poets Award. In 2015, he was named among Rolling Stone Magazine's 100 Greatest Songwriters of All Time. Jimmy's new memoir, The Cake in the Rain, details his formative years and early career through 1973. It's available now from St. Martin's Press. You know, I think
0: one way to condense that intro might
1: just be to list all the artists who have not
0: recorded a Jimmy Webb song. I think yeah, that yeah. might be an easier task. My word.
1: Yeah, I, I was like, well, I'll just do the, the A-list artist only to trim this down. And yeah, that's, uh, wow.
0: You still have to stop for a glass of water in there. <laughs> right. um, but, but before we get into the storied career of Jimmy Webb, we are going to continue our contest palooza that we have been doing for the last few episodes. Yeah. And uh, first of all, we have a winner for the Joe Melson signed CD yeah. from a couple episodes back. And that winner is Heather Kimsley. Nice. So number one, uh, we want to say thank you for listening, Heather. And number two, uh, be on the lookout for this uh, CD on the way to you.
1: Yeah, very cool. You know, actually, we recently gave away um, a CD. The We had the Natalie Hemby episode right. um, not too long ago. And we gave away a Natalie Hemby Uh, CD of her most recent album, Puxico. Mm -hmm. And the winner of that particular contest was named Eva Snyder. And she uh, actually is uh, a young singer, songwriter, um, obviously a fan of Natalie Hemby. And Eva just put out her very first EP, which is called Balance. Um, Actually came out um, just this past week, a couple days ago. Um, So... Uh, it's cool. She actually sent an email because we connected. Uh, yeah. You know, we'd sent her the CD, and she sent us an email, and and uh, so we got to hear it and thought it was pretty cool, and said, "Hey, you know what? We want to let our listeners know about this." So, um yep. dot That's e v a s n y d e r. dot com, and from there you can get links to. Uh, to her Facebook and her Twitter and everything else, so that you can go check out Balance, which is downloadable on iTunes. It's available on Spotify, and uh, yeah, check it out. She's a, she's a talented young lady.
0: Yeah, as, as much as we like getting into the careers of of some of the legends of the of the songwriting game, it's also really fun to hear people that are coming up yeah. and getting started now and doing new things. And and also, we really like hearing from people that are listening to the show. It's it's fun to kind of get to know you know other fans of this great music. Um, so it's, it's cool to have this medium. So, you know, keep keep sending us emails and, and sending us stuff. And we have uh, another contest today.
1: Man, the contests don't quit.
0: They don't stop here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So in uh, in honor of Jimmy Webb, we've got a copy of Jimmy's book, The Cake in the Rain, brand new book, literally uh, released this week. Um, hot off the press Hot off the press Eva Snyder and Jimmy Webb New product both of them This <laughs> week I mean we are on the pulse I feel like we're like We we, we know what's up For once but, I
0: know where the party is Yeah
1: exactly Exactly <laughs> So um, yeah Jimmy Webb's uh, Brand new book The Cake in the Rain It's, it's a memoir We're going to be talking A little bit more about it In the interview with him, but um, if you would like to uh, enter to win your very own copy of that book, courtesy of Songcraft, um, go to our website, slash contest, and you can get all the details there on how to enter.
0: And now, on to our current interview with Jimmy Webb. I mean, every time we have one of these legends, I keep thinking, can it get any bigger? Yeah, you know, can, can we possibly talk to, to another songwriter Who is who is so lauded and so yeah.
1: well-known And so well-regarded Jimmy Webb, my word Right, and could there be a nicer guy? I mean, the, right. the thing And I feel like we wind up saying this so many times About, about guests But Jimmy took... Um, a lot of time with us and he's promoting this book right now. So he's got interviews lined up. I'm sure he's a, he's a busy guy. Um, but it was like every question we asked him, he wanted to give a really thorough and thoughtful answer and, Mm -hmm. and just came across as like the most genuine, thoughtful and reflective guy. Like, well, you ask a a good question. I want to give you a good answer. Um, and, and I I just felt like, man, we could talk to this guy for, for a week with all the stories that he has. And what's interesting is he actually, um, we, we wound up going so long that his wife slash manager emailed us during, <laughs> during the interview That's to be like, Hey, uh, probably need to wrap it up guys. Yeah. And, uh, and I think it's because the three of us were just having a great time, yeah. you know, talking about this stuff. And, uh, so yeah, so we, <laughs> because he had another interview, I mean, it's a, like I said, he's doing all this, you know, all this press. And so it was like, Hey, we got to, we got to. You know, yeah. rain this in, fellas, so we can get to the next interview. But I just thought it was cool that a guy like that was like not in any hurry to yeah. to get off the phone. He was, you know, really happy to to chat with us.
0: I think that will forever now be the standard for a good interview. If you, you need to get an email from the wife asking you to wrap it up, and if <laughs> if we don't get that kind of communication, um, then it means
1: the interview wasn't that great. Right. It's I, I like that. It's a good measuring that, stick. That's the new standard. Um, and and you know, I gotta say, uh, listening to the, these Jimmy Webb songs. You know, he was such a guy of his era. In the late 60s and early 70s, he was doing these lavish orchestrations. Mm. And I actually first learned of Jimmy Webb through an album that he put out a few years ago called 10 easy pieces. It's very stripped down. It's just him and a piano and some light accompaniment. Yeah. And he's doing his own hit, the his versions of his hit songs. And I actually have to confess, I didn't know his songs very well before I got turned on to that album. And that is one of my 20 favorite albums, top wow. 20 easily. And, and the song, if these walls could speak, um, is one of my top 10 favorite songs of all time. And it was, the thing i find so interesting about that is i learned those songs devoid of their orchestration yeah. and their production and that's what great songwriting is because yep. his songs had huge productions but they didn't even need those huge productions those right. were just you know the icing on top of the cake to come back to the cake and the rain metaphor <laughs> but uh but to be able to take somebody's songs and boil them down to just a piano and a voice you yep. know Those are killer songs.
0: What are the other 19 albums in your top 20? (laughs) I'm
1: going to spool those out one at a time over our next 19 episodes, because I know people will be waiting with bated breath.
0: Stay tuned next week for number 19.
1: (laughs) Hey, I said he was top 20. I didn't say it was number 20. Oh, yeah, okay. It could be number three. You don't
0: know. If you go to a desert island, you have to bring a suitcase. (laughs) I am. Full of CDs, or or maybe just like your phone. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, let's get into hearing from Jimmy Webb.
2: Yep.
1: Jimmy welcome to songcraft
2: thank you so much it's an opportunity and I, I appreciate you uh, extending that to me
1: yeah it's it's great to have you with us we're both huge admirers of your songs and uh, I actually just finished reading your brand new book which covers your formative years and your professional career up through the early 1970s um, now your your first book Toonsmith was about songwriting while your new one called the cake in the rain is is pure autobiography um, and I'm curious how the process of writing your own memoirs compares with the process of writing songs
2: well uh, for starters uh, I mean it's an immense luxury to have more than three minutes to <laughs> <laughs> to express an idea so yeah at first it's this great sense of freedom and then later it's 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 kind of a you get into a trap. I overwrote my memoir by a couple of hundred thousand words.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Wow. And then went through a very kind of um, almost, uh, I would say, excruciating editing process. Yeah. And I'm not sure that's the best way to go, but the I, the, the results have been great. Mm-hmm. And um, the response has been extremely good. And, and uh, it was an opportunity to air out stories that i've really been collecting like recipes for uh for decades and and saying to myself you know i i mustn't forget this because this is so unreal this is so bizarre yeah and i have to remember that someday i might want to write these down if only for my grandchildren sure
1: sure well, you know, I mean, writing songs, especially for a guy like yourself, who has very much been a solo writer more than a collaborative writer, um, now suddenly you've got a an editor in the mix, somebody that's kind of shaping and, and you're bouncing things off of and urging you to cut things. I mean, it has to be kind of a, a different experience for a guy who's used to kind of working in a vacuum.
2: Well, very much so. You know, I I, I've always said that the the only problem I have with collaboration is the other person in the room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the in the world of publishing, you find out pretty quickly that you know it's sort of like a, uh, joining a military outfit, and you know the the editor, your personal editor at the at the house, is the general. Yeah. You know, yeah. But Elizabeth was great, and she um, she would uh, uh, sort of. Hands off, unless she really had to step in and say, "No, really." I mean, it's too long. You know. <laughs> right. Sure. I never felt that anything was unnegotiable.
3: Hmm, hmm, yeah.
2: Um, and I think that that's also a, an editor's job is to create an atmosphere where the where the writer doesn't feel too much like they're on a cutting board. Yeah. Right.
3: right. Of course. Yeah. Uh,
2: and and I think she's been quite expert and, and warm in in. Making me think that most of the changes had been my idea. (laughs) And it was something that I had to get used to. I I never liked giving up parts of the book that I had written. And I think as a songwriter that you get very used to sort of proprietary, you know, a sense of every bit, every scrap Uh, really belongs to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you're you're loath to give up even a a single word of a three-minute song because it's all so precious to you. There's so little (laughs) of it. Yeah, yeah. The most uh, erosive er of anything that happens when you're doing a memoir is that you really confront episodes in your life where you behaved in ways that you profoundly wish you had not. Mm.
3: (laughs) Yeah, right.
2: Right. And 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 yet there it is. And if, and if you're going to do a memoir, you might as well tell the truth because it's <laughs> a, it's your only shot. Right. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And you do take us back to the very early days, and you actually describe writing pop songs at a feverish pace during junior high school, uh, including a song called "Someone Else" that you wrote at age 12, which Art Garfunkel later recorded, which is pretty remarkable. Um, How did you first figure out that you were capable of writing songs, and who were your greatest influences at that young age?
2: The origin of any such notion would have had to have been the Baptist Church, because that was the only place that I was really allowed to play. Hmm. My father did not approve of rock bands and things Hmm. like that, so... um, I was granted quite a degree of latitude in my improvisational skills, and my mother actually hired a very special teacher, a wonderful teacher named Susan Goddard, who specifically was engaged to teach me to arrange for piano and and to sort of broaden my horizons and and expose me to some classics and things like that. And she realized early on uh, I can remember the day she threw the pian- she threw all the music off the piano and said, you don't need this. Wow. Hmm. And she had recognized an aptitude for, I don't know exactly what you would call it, but just a musicality, a hmm. sense of, she knew I was faking it through my piano lessons because I was playing them by ear. Right. right. What I thought was very crafty was that I would get her to play the lesson. I'd get her to play the song for me. Right under the guise that I wanted to hear the way, how it was supposed to sound. <laughs> right. If I got her to play it two or three times, I could play it. <laughs>
3: wow. Learn it and play it back. <laughs> uh,
2: but, but she wasn't that dumb, you know. <laughs> I mean, she figured it out pretty quick. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, everything exploded for mm. me.
3: Yeah.
2: I could see music. I could navigate my way through the menus of music and mm. the mathematics of music. And it, she you sort of gave me my passport to explore different chords, different melodies, uh, variations on melodies that I already knew. Mm. I mean, I never played Amazing Grace the same way again twice in a row. Uh And I could imitate to a great degree what I was hearing on the radio. That's the jump. Mm. That was the jump from church music to pop music. When I had the skills, I realized that pop songs were not that complicated (laughs) (laughs) compared to like Beethoven or Mozart. And this just became an accumulative process until one day, you know, I sort of began to seriously write follow-ups for songs that I heard on the radio, Mm -hmm. unconsciously. I didn't know they were called follow-ups, but I was aware of the practice of, of putting out songs that were similar to hits. Right. In the hopes that you could duplicate the success of the original record, I felt like, well, there are times when I'm I'm pretty close to writing a real hit song here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was my it was my own, you know. I mean, it's my own opinion.
1: <laughs> I but I mean, obviously, at a fairly young age, I mean, you talk about in your book that that once you were a freshman at San Bernardino Valley College. Um, you were really kind of putting most of your energy into traveling down to LA to try to get your, you know, songwriting career off the ground. And you were pitching songs at Warner Brothers Records, where you landed a couple Everly Brothers cuts. You ended up getting a a staff songwriting deal at Joe Bett, which was the publishing arm of of Motown Records. And I understand you had a a few cuts, a few Motown cuts in that era. Um, But I'm curious, though, what was the actual first ever commercially released song, however obscure that might be, that introduced jimmy webb to the world
2: this is pretty obscure but i had organized four beautiful blonde ladies mm-hmm. who i i had a choir class with at the college and i said you guys want to make a group i was i was already listening to records from detroit by martha and the vandellas mm-hmm. and and the supremes and and also listening to gospel music Cassietta george who was a legend in the gospel field. and So I, I, I was working with these ladies and I wrote two songs. I found a, a local entrepreneur and credit were credits to his name was George Clements. And he put up two or $3,000 to cut four tracks with these girls. And it was my first orchestral session. The guys at Motown helped me set it up. I did my arrangements. The girls copied my parts, uh, I went in and and as fate would have it, Hal Blaine was a drummer on that
3: Uh section.
2: And the actual arrangements themselves came off without a hitch. I mean, they were all we all sort of copied off on on notebook paper where we we made lines, we made our own staves, mm, wow. so that we could uh, uh, copy them out. I don't think that these were professional guys; they'd never seen arranged <laughs> for some high school notebook right. paper with blue ink, you know. Right. <laughs> and,
1: and I think you said you were like 17 in the book when this happened, right?
2: Yes, I would have been <laughs> a kid. Um, I'm going to say uh, 17, and I might have been late 16, enthralled with Little Anthony and the Imperial, So yeah, I, I would know. like lie on the floor and listen to to those arrangements. Finally, I came up with, you know, some acceptable arrangements that day. Yeah. The first one to come out, and it was on E Records, San Bernardino. I wish I could find one,
3: yeah,
2: uh they're rare as hen's teeth, but it, <laughs> right. it was a regional, and this is really qualifying a record. it was a regional turntable hit
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 it, it's a double quali- uh, you know qualification there, <laughs> right. and so I you know i mean it was it was pretty wild stuff, you yeah know, for, yeah. Like a first record, I mean, we were, you know, things were happening. Yeah, Yeah.
0: that's cool. I mean, it wasn't long before you had your real commercial breakthrough, though, as a songwriter, uh, when Fifth Dimension recorded Up, Up, and Away, which turned into a top 10 pop hit in 1967, earned you a Grammy Award. You know, you talk about how that song was essentially commissioned for a screenplay that was never written, which kind of got me wondering, do you typically like being given an assignment as a songwriter to kind of help get the process started, or do you prefer just letting inspiration strike?
2: Well, in that particular case, that was a friend of mine. Actually, William F. Williams, um, who suggested that I write a song called Up, Up and Away. Mm, and yeah. and was, was also rhapsodizing about writing a screenplay like a beach blanket movie, only out in the desert with, with hot air balloons, which I thought was a great idea. Yeah. And so I thought if I could write this song, it would give that project a push. Yeah. That was a totally erroneous notion. Because <laughs> uh, I, uh, I think I wrote the song like the first day... You know that he suggested the title, yeah. And the movie was long in coming, and then didn't really come at all. Uh, the, to go back to the question, which was, you know, being commissioned or sure. being assigned to do things, you find out when you get to Hollywood, and you and you find out very quickly that the movies, as as an art form, will subjugate music every time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It, it takes away your free will and your creativity is 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 almost a, a the very first thing that goes out the window, mm, yeah. Because somebody, somebody's saying, no, no, no. I want it more. Uh, I want it happier. I want it more sad, or right, or whatever. <laughs> right. You come into a a whole world where people communicate by comparing things to other things mm. and imitating other things, and 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 even describe their own movies like you know, well, it's The Longest Day meets meet me in St. Louis, you know, I mean, <laughs> right. they actually, the you know, these are high, so-called high concepts, that people really do talk like that, and you find out all of a sudden, well, this you know, isn't very creative at all. Yeah, right, yeah. And still, you're attracted, and it holds your attention for a long time. Mm -hmm. The idea of writing for the movies and eventually scoring, and I ended up scoring at least a half a dozen movies, one animated feature that did really well. Yeah. And um, and yet, when I look back on it, I don't see any of it as a really happy experience. Huh,
3: Uh, that's interesting.
2: You know, I went from the frying pan into the fire which you don't really see in the book but i moved to east and started trying to write for broadway which is worse <laughs> right, uh, right, you know right. i i at this point in my life it's like no no i'll write songs right, right? <laughs> right it's right. fine i'll write songs right you know it's what i st- it's the suit I, I came in right. wearing.
1: You came in wearing that suit in a big way because at the, at the same Grammy ceremony, we're up, up, and away, one song of the year. Another of your compositions, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, was also nominated for that same award. By the time I get to Phoenix, she'll be rising. She'll find
0: the
3: note I left hanging. On her door
0: she laughed When she reads the part That says I'm leaving Cause I've left that girl So many times before
1: You obviously have a, a long and, and fruitful history with with Glen Campbell, but that's sort of where it began. And you've got this great story about the first time that you actually became aware of Glen uh, when you heard him singing on the radio when you were a kid. Tell us about that.
2: Well, I was I was uh, roughly 14 years old. I was all my life. I worked on a farm. There was a lot of it. Yeah, there was right. a lot of it, and and it was summers in, on my granddaddy's farm and, and fall when we would get out of school for harvest. But I was out plowing uh, in a wheat field up north in the panhandle one time, and I had a Strictly contraband transistor radio, <laughs> because my father's rule was that we couldn't listen to rock and roll because right. it was about sex <laughs> and um and as as a matter of fact, I used to think that was ridiculous, but after many, many years i I eventually realized that that was exactly what it was about right. Uh, <laughs> But at the time, it seemed like a ludicrous idea. <laughs> right. uh, and so, you know, I, I, I remember specifically listening to Jan and Dean, Surf City, mm-hmm. completely oblivious to the fact that Glenn Campbell was playing guitar on it. Right. About yeah. Three records later, they played Turn Around, Look at Me by Glenn Campbell on Crest Records. And I went berserk. Wow. And now, and now this is 14. This is young. And I. God, I parked my tractor early that day and went back into town and begged my dad for enough money to drive over to a nearby record store. It was 22 miles away. Hmm. Strictly to buy that record, and I'll never forget the smell of that record store because I'd never been in a record store before. Yeah. I know that's hard to believe. Wow, that is amazing. And I walked into a record store, and the smell of that record it was intoxicating. Mm -hmm. It was like the best drug. And I got this record, and I think I was high on on the vinyl, uh, (laughs) which, by the way, I'm thinking about calling my next record High on Vinyl. But anyway, (laughs) um, I drove back home, and I wore that record out. I mean, I literally rendered it unplayable. And I prayed, and this is, you know, it's kind of a... I guess you would say a quaint anecdote, but it just happens to be true that I got down on my knees by my bed and said, dear Lord, you know, one of these days, please let me write a song just half as good as Turn Around, Look at Me. Wow. <laughs> and let me meet someone like Glen Campbell to sing my song. So this is kind of an epiphany for yeah. me. Yeah. And it was all in secret. Hmm. It couldn't be revealed to my father that this was my plan. Right. Sure. Cause uh, you know, I don't know when he would. He might have sent me to military school or something. You know, <laughs> right. hideous like that.
3: Right. right.
2: <laughs> but um, it, it had to be secret, and yet at the same time, I'm pl- I'm writing in the house all the time. He knows I'm writing. Mm. Yeah. Songs about love and girls and things like that. And at one point, he got so dis- disgusted with it that he. Put the piano out in the garage,
3: <laughs>
2: and I mean in the winter time with the garage door, you know, like up. Right. You know, I'm sitting down in the garage <laughs> playing. It was very hard to get keep the piano in
1: tune as well. <laughs> totally. Right. But I'm
2: not kidding. I, I was banned to the garage. Oh, man. You know, That's say, How come you play the same damn song <laughs> over and over and over again? You know?
0: <laughs> but, it, you know, if your dad had had a crystal ball, he would have seen some incredible success You know, not too far away in the future. I mean, up, up, and away, and by the time I get to Phoenix, they want a combined eight Grammys and, I mean, instantly catapulted you to fame as a songwriter and arranger. And I was surprised to learn in your book that the success of both songs really kind of came about as a result of your relationship with johnny rivers
2: it was around about that time that he was a uh, voted male entertainer of the year mm. four times in a row wow. four Sounds... years in a row wow. very very successful he was very sort of buttoned down italian style he mm. wore sharkskin suits and had his hair quaffed back and right. and you know this was on the cusp of the 60s you know the, the wave had not really broken yet, yeah. uh, he had begun to change his appearance a little bit, hmm. sort of let his hair grow out sort of more, of a more like like an Italian afro more, right. and was growing a little goatee and so but it was slow, but it was sure it was happening and when I left Motown went over to Johnny Rivers, he was starting a label called Soul City, right. No similarity here. Motown, Soul City. <laughs> Pure and coincidence. we took uh, we, but me being Mark Gordon, who was my boss at Motown. We both were sort of fired at the same time, and, mm. and I took some songs with me. One of them was uh, by the time we get to Phoenix, and there were a couple of more that were that turned out to be hits. Who knew? Nobody, you know. Yeah, there's something still very mystical about about the value or the lack of value that a song has yeah. i mean it's a very abstract yeah. concept and uh for people who look at a song and say oh i knew i, I knew that was a hit i don't believe it <laughs> <I'm> not, <laughs>
3: <Right>. <laughs> yeah.
2: i just don't think you could do that yeah. but anyway i went over with a few songs and this group called the versatiles lamont mclemore marilyn McCoo, billy davis okay. uh, florence larue gordon and Ron Townsend. Yeah. And in short order, they had changed their name to The Fifth Dimension. And I was given, basically, uh, stewardship of that group because mm. Johnny was busy. He was going to San Remo. He was touring. And he said, I need somebody to sit and work with this group. And so we were literally confined for hours almost every day. We shedded all vocal arrangements. We mm. had no written arrangements. They were enjoyable times. Um and I was I was able to slip one of my one of my songs in and when Johnny came back from San Remo he said, What's this song? And I said, Up up and away and he said, How'd this get here? And I said, Well, I just I sort of started teaching it to them. <laughs> he said, I love it. Wow. He said, Let's call the album up up and away. Wow. So, you know, I mean those are seminal points in your life. For sure. You know. And at the same time Glenn had a hit with John Hartford called Gentle on My Mind, which was a, actually a full-on masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I mean, Great song. that lyric is is in my top ten, mm. and I, I would have gladly stolen it from the guy. It was <laughs> so beautifully constructed.
3: Right.
2: And so Johnny says, you know, Glenn, I've been following this guy, Glenn Campbell. I made a record with him at Mercury in, like, 1958, mm. you know? yeah. Yeah, you know, it's incredible. I mean, Glenn was everywhere. Right, he, right. He played on everything. Yeah. And uh, he said, but I've been following his career. And I said, Glenn Campbell? You know, because I've been following his career right. Right. since I was 14 years old. <laughs> he said, well, he said, you know that Phoenix is a hit. Right. And I said, no, I don't really. <laughs>
3: right.
2: Not sure I believe in that. He said, well, it is. He said, it's a fucking hit. <laughs> and <laughs> he said, and I'm going to play it for Glenn Campbell. And he did. He got Al DeLore over and he had his test pressing there of, of the album changes. Right. He played, by the time I get to Phoenix, for Al DeLore and said, I want you guys to go in and cut this. I'll just sat there like mm. shocked and said, why on earth? are you giving us this song? He said, you know this is a hit. Yeah. And Johnny said, you can only have one number one record at a time. (laughs) And he said, I've got this writer here, and he did it for me.
1: Wow, wow, that's great.
2: And it was completely unselfish. It was like, I want, you know, Jimmy. Of course, I was his writer, and it was his publishing company. Right. It wasn't going to hurt for it to be a hit. Yeah, yeah. Um... But that's really how it happened, and Johnny Johnny did it, and it was, it was only a matter of weeks. Uh, I mean, everything was happening so quickly, almost vir- virtually at the same moment I had, by the time I get to Phoenix, and up, up, and away on the chart. Incredible. Yeah,
1: that's amazing.
2: From, you know, making nothing, I mean, for four or five years, I hadn't, I hadn't filed uh, income tax.
3: Huh. Oh, jeez.
2: I hadn't made enough. You had to make six (laughs) hundred dollars.
3: Wow! All of a
2: sudden, I've got two records on the chart, and that year we were nominated. The the Fifth Dimension. I think they won eight Grammys. Glenn won two, Hmm. and I went and, and didn't expect to win anything because I was nominated twice. For song of the year. Yeah. And I also had John Hartford in there with Gentle on My Mind and I also had Ode to Billy Joe by Bobby Gentry but I remember when they announced it uh, by that time I was crocked because I didn't drink but I was drinking that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I sort of like it was like it was like a dream after that. Yes, yeah. I remember meeting Glenn for the first time and shaking his hand
3: hmm.
2: and then suddenly he was snatched away and you know how they those things on our backstage, they just yeah. take on a surreal aspect
1: <laughs> Right, well you continued to find success with The Fifth Dimension scoring a couple of top 40 pop singles Paper Cup and Carpet Man off their second album, The Magic Garden which you co-produced and arranged and for which you wrote 10 of the 11 songs but it was MacArthur Park that solidified your place as a songwriting superstar in 1968 with Richard Harris's chart-topping version more than seven minutes long, MacArthur Park uh, pretty much challenged the notion that a long song could never become a hit because radio wouldn't play it. Um, And it's been somewhat controversial ever since. I mean, it's been recorded by a gazillion people, including Waylon Jennings, Tony Bennett, Andy Williams, and Donna Summer, all of whom have had hits with it. Um, So it's a much-beloved song for so many people, but... Much maligned by others, including Dave Barry, who famously called it the worst song of all time and uh, I wonder if you have thoughts on why it elicits such strong emotions, both positive and negative
2: I really don't know um, I just look at it as 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 a uh, as a classically influenced piece of pop music mm. that and the and the lyrics I feel like are completely sort of condign with everything else that was being written then by Bob Dylan and by the the Beatles and by Leonard Cohen and Don McLean And, and, I mean, if you think about the lyrics to Whiter Shade of Pale, you know. Um, And everything was kind of, you know, bizarre and off-center and meant to sort of mislead the listener a little bit or at least provoke the listener and make him wonder about what it meant. Right. I think that's obvious. I don't think there's anybody that would disagree with that statement. Right. Hmm. Um, And so I don't think it's particularly different, and I can't put my thumb on why it is controversial, Hmm. but I wouldn't take it back if I could.
1: (laughs) Right. Right, right.
2: Because it's been recorded, you know, somewhere around 500 times. Yeah,
1: it's out of
3: control.
2: Yeah, there's a whole
0: index in your book just for people that have recorded that one song.
2: Yeah, I mean, I thought Dave Barry was, you know, way out of line when he did that. But Mm -hmm. also, he's a comedian, so. (laughs) Right, right. You know, I'm not going to tell you what I said. They called me for a comment. I gave them a comment, but I'm not going to repeat it to you. (laughs) Um, Because I thought, you know, uh, really, you know. Have you really sat down and read Strawberry Fields, Dave? Right. You know, <laughs> uh, and I just thought it was, you know, quite. Uh, that it was a little bit unfair. yes yeah. You mm-hmm. know, without. And I'm not really even underlining it. I'm just saying it was probably a little bit unfair. But when I look back on it, you know, I'm 70 year old, years old. I look back. We never had any intention or, or even glimmer in our eye that it might be a hit it was just something we were going to put on Richard's album yeah yeah. it had already been it had already been rejected by the association hmm. and there were no bad there, it was amicable there were no bad feelings over it it was you know they it was too long for their album to be no. you know prosaic about it right uh, they were at the end of a record and it was just too long for their record yeah um to say that we had no, that we had uh, limited expectations about how, <laughs> how right. MacArthur Park was going to perform would be an, you know, an understatement on an understatement. Right. Uh, we just Richard and I were doing a lot of drinking <laughs> and hobbying right. no. in London at the time and having a hell of a time. Right. <laughs> going to football matches and having great big parties and and just totally absorbed in that London mystique, which was so powerful that, it, you know, words fail me. I mm. mean, you know, it was just the center of the universe. Yeah. It was the yeah. nexus.
0: Well, the flip side of MacArthur Park was Didn't We?, which went on to be recorded by several other artists, including Barbara Streisand and Frank Sinatra, who recorded his version on the my way album in 1969 this time we almost
3: sang the song in tune didn't we this time we almost made it to the moon
0: didn't we there's a great scene in the book when you go to a party in Las Vegas that Frank Sinatra's hosting for his daughter Nancy's Vegas opening and you have an encounter with an all-time rock icon at the bar tell us about that
2: this particular time at the what was then known as the International Hotel right. uh, Elvis was was finishing his summer festival. This is in August, and Nancy was bringing hers in. Right. Okay. So it was a it was a, it was a sort of a festive occasion because right. the two stars were in the hotel, and the the rooms upstairs where Elvis stayed were called the Nancy. It was called the Nancy Sinatra Suite. Hmm. And I had been up there a few days before and hung out with those guys and, and, and seen some truly unbelievable. Things in terms of I would seen all the white virgins waiting around for <laughs> Elvis to decide who he was going to go to bed with,
3: right.
2: and a lot of other things that kind of bugged my little Midwestern eyes out of my head. <laughs> uh, and uh, but I, I was in awe of him. Yeah, you know, he was apparently in awe of Glenn Campbell because he played he played that record until I I, I wanted to run out of there and pulling my hair out. <laughs> He would just play one side and then flip it over and play the other side. And I just went on for hours. But I somehow or other than, you know, you would visit Elvis, and then you would be sort of very ceremoniously shown the door by <laughs> Tom Parker, and then, <laughs> and then you wouldn't see Elvis unless you were invited to see him again. Right, yeah. It was, he was royalty-like. Yeah. And I'd been invited to this party in the lobby of the International hotel. Yeah. And I'd walked in and it was so crowded you couldn't move. Mm. I'm a country boy and I I don't mix and I don't socialize with any degree of aplomb. <laughs> right. Uh and usually what I I find myself like a point of perspective, a perch so that I can just watch. So yeah. that. I had been sitting at the bar, sort of watching, and finally I just laughed, because literally the room was so full of people that no one could move. And uh, I had turned around and was staring into this sort of black, gold-veined mirror, drinking a beer and hoping no one would recognize me, (laughs) and all of a sudden this baritone voice said, <laughs> I and I, I ignored him because I don't I don't want to talk to him. Whoever it is, I don't want to talk to. Him. And he said, Jimmy. <laughs> and I turned and looked at this guy, and I'm like nose to nose with Elvis Presley. <laughs> he 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 saw me. He recognized me. He came over. And I offered him a drink. He told me, No, oh, no, I don't drink. He said, But I want to. I, I tell you, he says, I'd like you to tell me something, Jimmy. He said. Um, how many French horns do you use in your orchestra, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Just what you thought weird. he was going to ask. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> A natural question.
2: And, <laughs> you know, like it's almost like also it's the pre- it's the presumption that I carry an orchestra around with me, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the back of my van or whatever, right. you know. Right. Uh but uh I I thought well this this is cool. It's really cool that he's interested in this. Yeah, yeah. And because it was something that I knew about and and was was actually passionate about. Yeah. So I said, well, you know, I said, Mr. Sinatra, who I I could see from where I was sitting, I said, uh, you know, he uses four, and I, I said, I really like four because because sometimes you have a chord that has more than three tones. Yeah. He thought about that. He said, yeah. He said, yeah, I know that. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, you know, maybe you should consider four. And he, he said, hmm. He sat there for a while and he says, well, Jenna, he says, I want to thank you. I want to thank you very much. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> and I said that's okay, and he was gone. Oh, wow, he was gone. that's amazing. And, and and it was that I, it was that that particular time that I had a, this poignant moment when I thought that some I don't know essential moment of my life I had blown. Hmm. That it was just the two of us, which which was I mean you didn't you never saw him alone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was just the two of us and how how had I been clumsy enough not to sort of engage him a little bit more and see if I could create a bridge mm-hmm. which was very difficult to do because he was surrounded by this complicated social order. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: That was almost impenetrable. Yeah, right. And suddenly, I, I, I had been I had it caught me by surprise. And had I been a little bit more prepared for it, I think I might have had a strategy for engaging him a little bit more in conversation. But yeah, uh,
1: yeah.
2: as it was, the conversation was about French horns.
1: Wow. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, in the wake of By the Time I Get to Phoenix, you scored another massive hit with Glenn Campbell's recording of Wichita Lineman, in what you've jokingly called your Rand McNally phase.
2: And I need you more than won't you
1: And I want you for all
3: time And the Wichita lineman Is still on the line
1: I recall reading in your first book, Tunesmith, that you're bothered by the most famous line from that song, which is, I need you more than want you, and I want you for all time, and the Wichita lineman is still on the line. So what is it that bugs you about that lyric today?
2: It's a false rhyme. Hmm. Time and line don't rhyme.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <Wow>.
2: <laughs> um, and I became... At some, at, at one point in my life, I I don't think I thought about rhyme very much. But then, when I began to get serious about writing, and particularly when I became friends with Joni Mitchell, and and, and uh, I started thinking about writing Broadway shows, and I was really under the influence of people who thought a lot more about the correctness of things like that, mm. and uh, and that's. Then and only then did I realize that i had written a false rhyme in Wichita Island. Yeah. And meanwhile, that line had, had become a kind of, you know, semi-legendary thing. Yeah. Wow. Right. And uh, you know, it, it's it's just it's I wouldn't say that it pisses me off. It's <laughs> just it just irritates me every time I hear it that it's a false rhyme. <laughs> but if it hadn't been a false rhyme. I think the philosophical question is would it have it, then it wouldn't have been that line.
0: Right, mm-hmm. right.
2: It, w- it would have been something else. I
0: mean, right. have you thought of what you would have put in there, you know, as an alternative?
2: No. <laughs> no I just did. I just did and it's like <laughs> it's it's like I said. It would have been something completely different. It, right. it, it may have been me going back into the verse and tearing the verse up a
0: little bit. Right, right, right. It's a house
3: of so cards. You put one or, card, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: You know, a better a better scansion on the lines, and I'm not sure where the lines would have gone. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. wouldn't have been that line, and so it was kind of my my carelessness about it that led to you know that led to this. You know, I mean, it's. It's something that that people really treasure, and Mm -hmm. honestly, I, I have to say I'm glad I wrote it because it means so much to the people who
1: treasure it. I specifically remember reading in a book at one point, I think it was the craft of lyric writing, perhaps, that really deconstructed... Uh, by the time I get to Phoenix, and why that song was such a great example of movement in a song, because there's actual literal physical movement, and it moves the plot forward, and kind of talking about how people get hung up in, you know, their second verse because they can't move the the song forward. But mm. it's fascinating to me to to look at some of these early songs that you were writing, and and to, as you say, it was sort of before you had had studied such things, so that really. The, this was just kind of instinct and pure raw talent, more than it necessarily was uh, having a, a system or or a concept as a young man of the way songs are necessarily constructed. It's like you had a, an instinct for it more than a than a like maybe intellectual idea about it.
2: Well, I think that's a fair assessment because until I wrote Toon Smith, I never really thought that much about what I was doing, uh, and maybe I never should have started thinking about it. Yeah. But I did start thinking about it. Yeah. And I think it's inevitable that 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 once you're, you know, you're 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 sort of accepted as well, you know, you're you're a songwriter, you're you're part of the community that, you know, you start looking back and you start listening to Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg and and uh Johnny Mercer and you start reading some of these great lyrics that actually do read like fine poetry. Hmm. Yeah. In in the case of Cole Porter, you know you you're you're so swayed by the wit and the sometimes the the humor and and the whole art of of maybe forcing a rhyme where there isn't really a rhyme but hmm. but you do it anyway for for the laugh you know what I right, mean right right yeah. so there are all these layers of of lyric writing and and it's just it's only natural that you begin to aspire to to to, to reach reach upwards and and to sort of establish yourself as a more legit hmm. songwriter. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think that particularly, you know, you you look at, at some of uh, Hal David's writing and you go, Oh my God, how did that guy write these lyrics? Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, and and they're pop lyrics. They're it's rock and roll, but wow, it sure is. Evocative of some of those great writers oh. like Lerner and Lowe and and uh, the Gershwin's and 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 our generation at least, we wanted to, whether we admitted it or not, as writers, we wanted to carry that forward. Hmm. You hear that in the Beatles music. Yeah. You hear real, real traditional writing techniques yeah. over and over. Even in Rolling, even in the Rolling Stones songs, the construction is pretty damn good.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And uh, they're my favorite rock and roll band, Mm -hmm. by the way. I just love them, and I love their songs.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: One of my favorite is Moonlight Mile. You
3: know. Mm -hmm.
2: And so there was a uh, there was a void where the construction used to be, but there was the traditions of songwriting was they were recognized even when they weren't copied.
1: Uh, Um, That's interesting
2: happened towards uh, some something that started happening in the uh, i think in the 80s i look at pop writing today and to me it's a little sad that the construction is almost not there right hmm. right that none of the conventions none of the tradition uh, were held over
1: hmm.
2: apparently in yeah. most cases
1: yeah that's true
0: well, yeah, I mean, it seems that things have, have you know, sonics have become the focus, um, and, and lyrics have taken a bit of a backseat.
2: You know, you know uh, Paul Simon said to me one time, I said, what do you think about melody? I said, I, I don't hear a lot of great melody. He said, melody's going to disappear. You know, and he has had a way of making these pronouncements. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Rather, rather deadpan expression, right?
3: Right.
2: And not with a lot of emotion. Right. Which would lead you to... Sort of discount that really to be honest and you'd sort of say well i don't know why he said that but he said it and he's <laughs> paul simon and he can say it so he did say it <laughs> right. i'm you know much chagrined you know i think back on what he said and i look around and i i think well we're on our way yeah you know <laughs> we're really well down the road it's it's almost like when classical music became operetta and then light classical and then became pop music. Hmm. yeah. And Noel Coward said about some of the early jazz recordings and some of the musical stuff, he said, how potent cheap music is. Well, that no. was his judgment of a whole generation of writers. Yeah, yeah. That preceded our generation.
3: <laughs> right, right.
2: So I wonder how cheap our music was, you know? <laughs>
3: right.
2: And what we're sort of seeing is devolution.
3: yeah. Mm. And I,
2: I don't know at what point you have some sort of a great—I don't know—an epiphany mm-hmm. of a generation that just says enough. You mm-hmm. know, enough. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to hear any, any, any more yeah. songs that don't have melodies. I—I I don't know whether that ever happens again or not.
0: Right. Well, you know, your stuff has always been kind of marked by its integrity, not only structurally but even in terms of the fact that it, its inspirations have come from a very real place, and one example would be the song The Worst That Could Happen. That was recorded by the group Brooklyn Bridge in late 1968. Um, it, it was a cover of your song that was originally recorded by The Fifth Dimension. Um, that song reached the top five on the pop chart. Girl,
3: I heard you're
1: getting married Heard you're getting married This time you're really And this is the end They say
0: And you've been very open that this song, as well as by the time I get to Phoenix, MacArthur Park, and Wichita Lineman, were all written about Susan Horton, who was your high school crush and later girlfriend. Um, You were basically a teenage kid wrestling with unrequited love when you were writing this stuff, you know, just pouring your emotions onto the page. But as you matured and moved on to other relationships, did you ever fear that the loss of your original muse would affect the magic of your songwriting process?
2: Well, no, not really, because... It was a very um, naive sort of childhood sweetheart, hmm. you know, arrangement.
3: Yeah. Right.
2: And, and and so was the music. And so was almost everybody else's music, the right. Beach Boys. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Susie Horton was my surfer girl. Right, right. Um, and I had her on a pedestal, and, and there wasn't really to tell you the truth not nothing like the physical relationships that people that young people have today Mm. and that's not to say that was good or that was bad but it created a kind of idealistic muse a kind of you know uh something that wasn't probably very realistic or earthy or in touch with what really goes on between men men and women and i think that as i grew older and frankly, I I think that my lyric writing improved hmm. immensely right. after I met Joni Mitchell and between the albums, between between the albums, the letters and Lands End, I went through a sea change lyrically where I adopted a more conversational tone, like Randy Newman and and, and right. like Joni Mitchell. It's, mm-hmm. It was it was it was more. A part of the world that I lived in, and and the a and my actual age, my chronological age, right. the way I dealt with people, and my my romances. Frankly, uh, that one, the one that I wrote *Land's End* about, that one almost killed me. Mm. And that's that's at the point where you like you you get to a realization where you know that your first love affairs were really not as serious as you thought they were. Huh. Yeah. Because you realize that that this love affair is actually threatening your life hmm. so potent and so adult and based on the real laws of the universe. That's that's a different thing, guys. <laughs>
3: right, right. right. Next you know,
2: that that shows up in your lyrics, I mean, but I there's no way I'm gonna I'm gonna admit to you because it would be untrue the remote possibility that my lyrics were not better when i was in my late 20s and early 30s than Mm. they were when i was in high school
1: Right. right right, exactly well, I know the book only takes us up to the early 1970s in your career, but there are a couple of other things I want to ask you about from later just as a fan. Um, the first is the song Highwayman, which earned you a Grammy for Country Song of the Year after it became a number one hit for Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, and Chris Christopherson, and of course inspired the name of their group, The Highwayman.
2: I fly a starship across the universe divide. But I will remain
1: that song first appeared on your own album, El Mirage, from 1977, which was produced by George Martin. Um, now, I know that your father was a Baptist minister and that you started out playing gospel music as a kid. And you shared that story a while ago about, um, you know, praying that you would become a successful songwriter and find a singer like uh, Glenn Campbell. Um, and I see, even with a song like "Highway Man," it sort of is a mystical song that explores uh, reincarnation to some degree. Um, has spirituality been an important thread or, or influence in your songwriting consistently over the years?
2: Well, uh, it's 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 even even if unconsciously, it's always been there because I'm always finding it. Mm-hmm. I'm always going back and saying, "Oh, God, I didn't know that I was." That I did that. I mean, at the end of Suspending Disbelief, um, there's, there's, there, there are these three old gospel songs linked together. Yeah. Hymns about death and resurrection all linked together with this huge orchestra. I'd almost forgotten I did that. Yeah. So, I mm. mean, there's this... I think that you can take the boy out of the church, but you can't take the church out of the boy.
1: <laughs> Interesting.
2: When, when you are indoctrinated the way I was from birth. Mm. And we went to church three or four times a week and vacation Bible school. And I went out with my father on his evangelical adventures, and really my first taste of showbiz was out on the road with my dad. And then you sort of grow up and you get more sophisticated, and you go, well, maybe I'm an agnostic, or maybe I'm this, or maybe I'm an atheist." Uh, And then you realize that you depend on a kind of spiritual conduit Mm. every time one sits down to the piano, that if you don't get linked up with this thing, that nothing happens.
3: Mm.
2: That left to your own devices, absolutely nothing will happen. Mm. But that when you open yourself to the idea of receiving, of being a receiver rather than an originator, Mm -hmm. that you that you, you sort of have a secret collaborator that you can call on any time by just, yeah. Yeah. By just opening your mind to the idea that there's more to the world than physics. Mm-hmm.
3: Right, yeah.
2: So, well, in fact, quantum physics begins more and more to point the way towards some sort of spiritual universe. Yeah, interesting. That we can't see the Earth in just plain physical terms Mm. and and i i don't think i've ever been able to do that yeah yeah and um i've always so i think like it or not whether i wanted to or not that i always felt connected to something Hmm. bigger
0: well and that collaborator always provides great ideas but takes no cut of the song so you know you've (laughs) actually got probably the best collaborator ever that you just described that's a
2: great that's a great advantage that that you've highlighted for me. <laughs> right?
1: Yeah, you never have to work on the splits at all. It's great. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, That's funny. Well, uh, uh, your relationship with Glenn Campbell produced many more hits over the years, including Galveston, Where's the Playground Susie, Honey Come Back, It's a Sin When You Love Somebody, Still Within the Sound of My Voice, Light Years, More Than Enough. I mean, we could go on and on. Um, but one of those Glenn Campbell records that was not a hit Actually happens to be my personal Favorite Jimmy Webb song which is If These Walls Could Speak um, It's also been recorded by Amy Grant Sean Colvin, Nancy Griffith and others But uh, in my opinion the best Version is the one that appears on your Own album Ten Easy Pieces from 1996
3: They would tell you that I'm sorry For being-
2: They would tell you that it's only That I have a little bit of a stubborn streak Yes, I do, darling If these walls could speak
1: Now, you've released about a dozen albums as an artist over the years, starting with Words and Music in 1970 up through Still Within the Sound of My Voice in 2013. And you write in your book about feeling like you fell into the generation gap musically. You kind of belonged to an earlier era of pop songwriting, so to speak. But you also were very much influenced by confessional singer-songwriters like Joni Mitchell. Um, And you really wrestled with that identity thing in the 1970s, um, but now that you've established yourself as both an artist and a songwriter who is obviously very well regarded, um, how do you feel about your legacy in 2017 that might be different than how you felt about it in 1971, for instance?
2: Well, um, I'm not desperate about anything, <laughs> um, and and that may sound odd, but... There was such desperation attached to my attempts to define myself as an artist and to make myself a part of the singer-songwriter community and legitimatize myself as as um, not a middle of the road dude mm. at all. You know, yeah. Uh, it was it was so vitally vitally important for me to do that. Um, I look back on it now, and I see that, to a great extent, I, I I was successful. It came at a cost. It came at a cost. But I think that be, to be an artist always involves some sacrifice, yeah. and that life could have been a lot cushier, and I would be living in a lot bigger house if I had just gone along and went down the middle of the road. and. And and didn't get involved in politics, and didn't speak out against mm-hmm. the war, and didn't write about write about the war mm-hmm. and the, and, the, and the evil that I saw around me, and be, been apolitical, and played Las Vegas when you couldn't really play Las Vegas, or you weren't supposed to anyway. Right. Yeah, um, there would have been a there would have been a whole other life available to me. And in many ways, I think it would have been more comfortable. Mm -hmm. But given the choice, I would go back and do exactly what I did, which is get on a bus with three guys and go out, like Paul Simon wrote so eloquently, and look for America, Mm -hmm. And and look for my place in America, however small or ignominious it might be, to be able to plant my feet and say, well, this is mine. Mm-hmm. These are my records. these are my songs. These are my fans and And live my life on my own terms rather than be swept along by by a a, a strict- strictly commercial interest in in how much money I could amass yeah yeah, yeah. And that's really what my position is mm-hmm. and, and i and and no i and so I can honestly say, and I really can honestly say. I don't have any regrets. I do Mm. not have any regrets. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of emails I wish I hadn't said. As far as the big decisions, (laughs) I'm okay with it.
1: You're at peace. (laughs) Well, speaking of emails, <laughs> I'm literally getting an email from Lara right now saying that you have a uh, a two thirty interview, <laughs> so she she's hoping we can uh, can wrap it up. I wish we could talk to you all day because this has just been. Oh, that'd be an great. Honor. You
2: guys are great to talk to. Yeah,
1: thank you so much for doing this, Jimmy. Love the book. Such a fan of your of your music, and this has just just been really yeah. really great for us.
2: Anytime, you're you're a couple of swell guys.
1: Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next
0: time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters.